Hello, and welcome to Success Stories. I'm Kendra Hall, Chief Storytelling Officer at Success Magazine, and this is the podcast where we sit down with the brightest stars and the boldest thought leaders as they share their stories so you can create your own success story. And I have to say, when I sat down to do this interview, I fully expected Valerie to be full of energy and positivity. But what I wasn't expecting was how valuable these simple tips and perspectives she could offer on a topic that has been weighing heavily on my heart, as well as on many others, I'm sure. Valerie just wrote the book, Let Go of the Guilt. And in that conversation, I realized just how much guilt we can carry and how they show up in the stories that we tell ourselves. So to have an action plan for what to do when that guilt shows up, I was very grateful for that. Let's get to it. Today's success story is Valerie Burton. Valerie is the author of now 13 books on personal development, the founder of the Coaching and Positive Psychology Institute, and an international speaker on resilience and happiness. She has spent more than 15 years studying the research of resilience, positive emotion, and courage while implementing it in her own life and with hundreds of clients from a dozen countries and nearly every state in the U.S. Her latest book is Let Go of the Guilt, Stop Beating Yourself Up and Take Back Your Joy. Valerie, welcome to Success. We can't wait to hear your stories. Oh, I'm excited to be here, Kendra. Thanks for having me. Now, I had said in our pre-conversation that you and I go way back in a tangential way. You spoke for an organization. I think it was like a decade ago that I have a close tie to. And even still now, people rave about the message that they heard <laughs> from you 10 years ago. Like, So let's start, how does that make you feel? Like to know that you are just leaving a trail of goodness that lasts for decades um, a little surreal, very happy. It's very affirming of my purpose. Like that's, that's incredible. But I remember, I remember my audiences too. So as soon as you said, who, I was like, oh yeah, I remember that. I remember them. I remember how they were. Um, because I get, I get a lot of energy from the people who hear the message and are like, yeah, this is exactly what I needed. It, it's a, it's a great thing. So, so tell me, I want to go um, back because, of course, you've written how many books now? Thirteen. Thirteen books. And, and not a huge span of time. Like, that's more than, more than a book every other year, right? Yeah, I guess it is. Yeah, I, I, my very first book I self-published in 1999, and a division of Random House picked it up and published it in 01. So... That's 20, 21 years, I guess. Uh, yeah, that's, that's at least every other year. I know there was a period where I wrote a book a year, six straight years. All right. I want to know. I want to know more about that as a writer myself. And a lot of people who are like, oh, I really want to write a book and can't even get like five words on a page, much less 13. So tell me, did you always know? I want to go all the way back. Like, did you always know that this is what you were going to be doing and you were just trying to figure out a way to get there, write, speak? I got little inklings at different spots, but I didn't know exactly what it 
would look like until it all came together. So like with writing, I first, you know, I had a teacher in second grade who told me I was a good writer. So I always had this, this um, confidence about my writing because Miss Johnson at Rhein-Main Elementary at Rhein-Main Air Base, Germany, if anybody knows her, <laughs> told me. Send a note. Yeah. Yep. Um, I wish I could tell her, like, you told me that. I believed you had written 13 books. <laughs> um, I always liked public speaking. My family always encouraged it. My mother always joked about, you know, she would ask me how long I could go without talking. Like I had like a two minute record because talking was never an issue. Um, and then I remember thinking I want to speak. Um, you know, I had, I, I, I saw Les Brown on TV. I was like 19 and I was like, I don't know what that is, but I think I want to do that one day. Like maybe when I'm like 40, I remember having that thought. So it was little pieces coming together. Yeah, yeah. When I was in journalism school, as the first time I thought, I want to write a book. I want to be an author because I want to have a career and I want to have a family, but I want to have flexibility. I want to have my own company. Like I was always very entrepreneurial. I knew even in high school, I wanted my own business. Yeah. And so the, the thing that was missing was purpose. Yeah. Like, why am I doing this? So, you know, I, I attempted my, it was my third attempt at writing a book before I actually succeeded at it. <laughs> and that attempt came after I realized, oh, I'm supposed to be inspiring others to live more fulfilling lives. Like I, I needed to know why yeah. I was doing what I was doing. And when I got the why, when I got clear on that, I mean, it just all came together. So I feel like I read about this somewhere, heard, heard you say this before. And, and when you said the year, it made me remember it was 1999, wasn't there? So what was it that, and I know there was like a turning point, like a moment where you, you were going somewhere and all of a sudden realized that you needed to make a turn and go somewhere else. Can you tell us about that? Yeah. So I had my own public relations firm. I lived in Dallas at the time. I was, you know, I was good at it because communication yeah. is my, that's my strength. Yeah. But I was like, this isn't the purpose. <laughs> like I, and I, so I was trying to create this vision for the PR firm that would get me excited and motivate me, but that's all external motivation. So no matter what goals I set, I always deep inside was like, I don't really want to be doing this. So and, wait, let me ask, I'm sorry for interrupting you, but like, that sounds like, based on what you had said just a moment ago, you know, you had an entrepreneurial spirit, you knew you wanted to own your own company, you wanted yeah. that flexibility. It kind of sounds like owning your PR company checks all of those boxes, like right. that, that that really is success, right? Did you, but it, it sounds like it didn't quite fit. Like, did it fit at the beginning and then it wore off? Did it, because I'm thinking of all the people who are listening and, and it's almost like, Cinderella, like they feel like they put the shoe on their foot, I suppose, but it doesn't quite fit, but it, it checks the boxes, but they, so, I mean, did you, how long did it take to know, and did you fight that idea of like, wait, no, this is really what I was supposed to be, I thought this is what I wanted to do. Oh, I fought it because I had clients, and I had employees, and I had, I mean, I was, I was way into it, yeah. um, so it wasn't something I talked about. It was just a thing I knew. And so for me, it was prayer. I just started praying. What is my purpose? What am I here? And it wasn't like an immediate, it was a couple of years. Really? When I got clear. So yeah, it all did seem to make sense. It wasn't like, 
I'd never had a vision for a PR firm. Like I, mm-hmm. I was in school thinking, yeah, I'm entrepreneurial. I had been, I had interned in the governor's office. I'd interned for a hockey team. PR was, you know, and, and I also, to tell you the truth, when I, I've, I've dissected all of this, I, but I also, as confident as I looked, wasn't confident that I was going to be um, hired as a TV reporter or anchor, which is what I was studying. So it was more like, but I know I can do this. It was more, and I know that sounds really bizarre, but I, I mean, I never even sent a tape to a newsroom. But that's what you wanted to do. Yeah, I was always interested in broadcasting. Loved it. And you never sent a tape. Mm-mm. No. And I think about that now and I'm like. What? I know, I'm like, send a tape, Valerie. I don't want to, I, 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 yeah. it all goes back to, there were elements of what I liked. But even when I did interviews with um, print, like newspaper, um, newspapers and stuff, I did interviews. I thought, so they're just going to basically give me a story I got to go tell. Right. That didn't excite me. Yeah. <laughs> I, that, read it off a teleprompter. Yeah. I got to, you know, so and this might be somebody else's purpose. That's not to put these paths down. But for me, I was like, I like to write, but I like to write about what I want to write about. <laughs> so I was in the, I was in the arena. I was in the kind of general area, but even with the, like with the TV reporting, I was like, I still knew that might be a stepping stone to something I really wanted to do, but I still had the interest. And I find it interesting that I didn't, that I was, I had the lack of confidence to try. That was really more of my fear of being rejected. And I worked around it by choosing something that I really felt I wouldn't be rejected at. So what do you think? I mean, just listening to that, I'm thinking that phrase right there, I worked around it. Um, I'm thinking about all the times I've worked around my fears, my lack of confidence, and, and, and you can write a really good story on the other side. You just kind of like take the detour to the other side. So, and I mean, of course it, it, it works out. You are where you are right now, but what would you say to someone who just heard you say that? And they realize that they're doing that same thing. Yeah. And here's the thing. You can get very well rewarded for that. Because you can succeed at something that you know deep down isn't your purpose, and that was that was actually part of what was pushing me. I was getting recognition for being, you know, one of the thirty under thirty. Right. You know, um, in my, you know, in Dallas at the time, you know, it was unusual. I was very young. I started my PR firm the month I turned twenty-four, um, and then I would connect. I remember connecting with a guy who was on one of these lists with me and he just like called up, like he emailed and we talked like, yeah, I'm right. I forget what he was running some kind of tech company <laughs> and he had all this energy and all this passion. And he was talking about vision and I felt like I don't have that yeah. for my business. And that is a problem. You know, you are not the first person that I've interviewed for this podcast that has said that. I, I remember, I think it was, uh, it was maybe it was Gretchen Rubin who wrote the Happiness Project, and she said, you know, she was watching her friends like be so excited about law and like stay up and read, and she's like, 
I like it. I'm good at it, but right. I'm not that into it. So, you know, and then, and then like that's, and that's kind of what is required if you're going yes. to reach, if you're somebody who drives for success, like that passion is required, right? Purpose fuels perseverance. Yes. You have to have an understanding of why you're doing it and why you specifically. And so that's what I wanted. That's what I knew I needed. And not everybody's purpose is tied to a business or their career. Right. We are all created differently. <laughs> we all have a different mission, but you sh- there should be something that's driving you towards whatever your life path is that allows you to persevere and be resilient, especially when it gets hard. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Because it's not going to be all excitement and things going great. And there has to be a reason for you to stick with it through that. And if you don't have that reason, you're likely not going to stick with it or it's going to be really hard. It's going to feel like a burden. I mean, there's a big difference between something being hard and something being a burden. You're right. You're so right. Yep. And so for me, I needed it to not, I didn't want it to ever feel like a burden. And so when I literally just had an epiphany one day. (laughs) My next question was like, okay, so you did years of praying, which I want to ask about that in just a minute too, like how you have the patience for years of praying. I'm not a very patient person, but then, but then at one point, one of those prayers turned something on, or as you just said right there, an epiphany. So what happened? What, what was, do you remember the day? Do you remember the night? Do you remember the conversation? Tell me. I remember it. It was July 10th. Wow. It was a Saturday, 1999. I had gone to a journalism convention. It was actually called Unity. It was several different journalism organizations had theirs together. And being in PR, I was, I was there. I almost didn't stay. But there was a panel on the last day of people who had written books. And remember I said I had tried two other times to write books. <laughs> Right. Okay. Yeah. I was like, I'm not going to go back home early. I'm going to stay for this panel. And so the convention was in Seattle and I, I stayed for the panel and, um, and I'm listening and I'm in the back I'm taking my notes. And, and there was a woman on the panel, like I could see myself in her. Like, I was like, yeah, I could do this. I walked across the street when it was all over. There was a Barnes and Noble across the street. I'm like, I'm like at home at the bookstore. Like, <laughs> I could be in there for three or four hours. It's like 30 minutes. You know? <laughs> that mean books. I'm good. <laughs> yeah. And I, I walked across the street and I was in, I think it was in the women's book, like women's interest section. And I had this overwhelming feeling, this epiphany, and it wasn't a voice, but in my spirit, I heard yeah. your mission is inspiring others, especially women to live more fulfilling lives. You will do it through writing and speaking. Kendra, it felt like I was about to float away. Like, I was like, that's it. Like why it never came to me (laughs) like so clearly before, I don't know, but it was like that, that's it. And I remember going back to my hotel room and writing it down. Like, I can't, I can't forget this. And it was about three weeks later that I started writing the first book. Um, and I wrote it at night and on the weekends, I had never been a fast writer. That was another reason I wasn't so sure about being a reporter. And um, now it was just flowing, and I 
I think I probably started around the first of August. I finished writing by the end of October. And I had a book in my hand the day before Thanksgiving that year. Wow. And, and isn't that, um, like I, I've had at that moment that you just described that, uh, that, um, not a voice. I've had a voice moment as well, but a vibration moment where like, I just, it was so, and I didn't, I didn't fully understand it. Like it was actually about the move. We moved from on a whim kind of from Arizona to New York city, two kids, big move. Don't, didn't know anybody here, but I just, I remember walking down the street one day and I, and just, I was visiting the city and just having that. So, so tell me, did you, act right away did you quit your job like what what, what? no I was running my PR firm (laughs) and I would I would write at night and I would write on the weekends and I was writing until I could until I was done Uh, and I at what point did you stop the PR firm was it it was about a year and a half yeah later I um I sold my business I just jumped right into the writing and speaking and I had this big vision of like Oh, within six months, it's going to be like this. And that, that vision I had took about seven years. <laughs> I mean, we, it's good to have big, timely visions, which actually that brings me back to that, that when I was talking about patience. So prayer for you, finding your purpose and, and waiting for several years. So what did you, how did those couple years in between where you, where you knew something wasn't quite right, like you weren't quite aligning with your purpose before you walked in to that Barnes and Noble, how did that feel? Did you get, um, were there moments of like frustration for you? Were you, were you anxious? Did you fight that? Did you like, what, what did those years feel like? Did you find other like, um, like workarounds that like mini purposes that could sustain you until you found that bigger one. Do you remember what those years? Cause I feel like there's perhaps, especially in the point in time where we're at right now, a lot of people in that, like it, they haven't gotten the, they haven't gotten the answer to the prayer yet. They're still praying. Like, what did that feel like? I, I still was, my, I still was focused on my business. I think, a lot of what I was doing was trying to figure out how to make this feel more purposeful. Yeah. <laughs> and there were, there were things that did feel purposeful and it was challenging. It was, you know, it wasn't like, Oh, this is terrible, but it did get to the point after I learned my purposes when it actually got harder. So in that, in that couple of years that I was like praying to know my purpose, it was like, yeah, one day this is going to come to me. <laughs> yeah, just open, yeah, it was more open. But yeah. I would imagine once you find it, then it's like. Once I found it, I was like, it made it harder yeah. to keep going in something else. I wanted to figure out. It was probably about a year. It wasn't quite a year. It was probably about eight to ten months after I had published the book. I And because I was in PR, I got a lot of media opportunities because I just, I knew people that I had relationships with. They're like, you wrote a book, come on the show, you know, do, we're going to do this feature story, whatever. That was leading to great opportunities. And I had a vision that I wanted a big publisher to pick it up. So, you know, I, and I reached out to Barnes and Noble. They actually carried my self-published book. I don't even know if they do that anymore. Um, you know, I was, I was getting the media attention about seven months in. I went to a big um, book convention, hoping to meet a publisher. And sure enough, <laughs> an editor from Random House, like walked up to my table and started asking questions. I didn't know she was an editor until like she was holding up the lines. I was like, so what, 
you know, what bookstore are you with? I thought it was, she was a bookstore owner. Yes. Oh, no, I'm not. I'm not in a bookstore. I'm an editor for Random House. I'm looking for fiction, but this looks interesting. So I'm like, you are who I was waiting for. I, you know, I had my press kit ready. Um, so there were things happening. And once that especially happened, because that was my big goal, I was like, okay, I'm on my way. How do I start? How do I make this what I do full time? That was my that was my goal. And that's when I got hard. And to be honest with you, Kendra, it, it came to a point where like, I didn't sleep through the night. I remember I went about six or eight weeks. My soul was just restless. Yeah. Um, I didn't, people were asking for proposals. I mean, when you own a business and people want to give you business and you're like, no, you have a problem. <laughs> not how it's, that's not how it's supposed to be. And so that's when I, that's when I knew it was time to step out and, and do something else. Oh, I just like, I just love, and I think about you going to a book convention, like who has the courage to get a table at a book convention? Like, you no, know, like it's all in relationships. So, you know, this is 20 years ago when we still had a lot of independently owned bookstores. Yeah. And I would walk into those stores with my book and introduce myself. And they would let me consign my book. Oh, wow. Right? You just, I give you 20 books. You, I'll come back in a few weeks and however many, you know, we'll settle up. And one of those bookstores, the very first one to, uh, to do that for me, Emma Rogers, she was chairing this, this like reception at this big book expo America. And she told me, she said, look, you have to pay your way. You have to bring 150 books to give away. Oh. But, there, but there could be some publishers there. And I thought that's my opportunity. So, you know, I mean, I, if you have the vision, you know what you're willing to invest in resources and time and you get when, when there's a window of opportunity and you're saying she can pick, I think she could pick like five major publishing house authors and five self-published. And she's, she's saying, I can go, I just got to find a way there. Right. You realize this is the opportunity. I'll be in the room with the people and and maybe, right? And that was, that was what I, that's how it happened. And now, even when I talk to other authors, they're like, that's how you get a book deal. Because <laughs> that's, that's not the norm. <laughs> no, that is, that is not normal. But you know what? I think if you ask all, if you ask a lot of authors how they got their book deals, they'll say, well, this is how you're supposed to get it. But this is how I ended up getting mine. And it's, and, and I think the ultimate thing here that I hear you saying is just do like you just went, like you walked into the, and you consigned and, and yeah, maybe that was 20 years ago, but there's, there's still the, the doing hasn't changed. Um, And I feel like there is so much perfection. Like people want to make sure that they have it exactly right or do exactly the right thing and not realizing that just doing something. um, Yes. The doing, the asking, the, I, you know, I asked around and I was, I I met a graphic designer and he designed for two other authors that were self-published. They got picked up by big publishing houses. So like, can can you give me their email address? They were, you know, they shared what they did. I remember I I bought a book on how to publish a book. That's how I published my book. (laughs) Like I just followed the steps. I went to the store and I would look at the books I liked. I would look at the books on my shelf. What do they look like? Because I want Barnes and Noble to carry my self-published books. It has to look 
look like their book. As good or better as anything else in that store. It can't look self-published. So I had, you know, the background in PR and marketing definitely helped me because this is what I would do for my clients, even though it was more business to business. It's still the idea of what is your message and how is that message conveyed and perceived by other people. So that attention to detail can open doors, but then you got to deliver on the message. (laughs) It can't just look as you got to deliver on the message. And yeah, it was a lot of, it was a lot of, of work, but I knew it was my purpose. It, It was fun. Yeah. And then when I, when I finally did have a big publisher, I really appreciated them because I was like, whoa, I don't have to do that. <laughs> this on myself last time. So let's talk now about um, your book that just came out September 1st, 2020, um, called Let Go of the Guilt, Stop Beating Yourself Up and Take Back Your Joy. And just the title, not even, not, I didn't even need the subtitle, like just the title of the book, um, it, it, it just felt like, oh, I need, and as I started reading even through the first, the first story, the first opening story, I'm like, this is, this is my life. So what, what prompted you to write this book right now about guilt? Was there, what made you say, this is, this is the book I need to write right now? You know, I had, um, I keep talking about vision. I think vision is so powerful. What happened was at 20, when I told you, I said, I want to be an author. I want to have a family. That's what I pictured for my life. Um, at 36, I found myself going through divorce, never having had kids and thinking, will this vision all come together? And it was the vision that kept me moving forward. Like, let me heal from this. Let me not give up my dream. And sometimes I even felt silly still having that dream. Then everything came together. (laughs) My husband and I connected. We actually grew up together in Colorado, went to middle and high school together. Both happened to live in the Atlanta area when he saw one of my books and tagged me on Facebook. It's like, oh, you're in Atlanta. Let's have lunch. Like this, this is how it all came together. So you get a book deal. That's how you get a husband. (laughs) This is easily replicated. (laughs) And it's a lot of stuff I can't like take credit for, right? But but faith in it. Like you, you follow the, yeah. So, yeah. So then, you know, I immediately became a bonus mom. My, my husband had two daughters. They actually had names I had written in my journal. If I ever had girls crazy. Um, And then our son came along and I remember one day specifically dropping, we went together to drop Alex off at preschool. And as we're walking out, I said something like, I feel so guilty. And my husband's like, what are you talking about? And I said, you know, I feel like, I feel guilty leaving him at preschool. Like sometimes I'm second guessing, you know, running my business and doing what I'm doing. Like maybe I should be at home. And he's looking at me like, first of all, I had actually changed my schedule. (laughs) So Two of the five work days, I didn't work at all. I was at home um, because remember, the vision was flexibility. Make the schedule what you wanted and needed to be. But he was like, I don't. I thought this was your vision. Didn't you say you wanted to be an author, have a business, have a family with this flexible schedule? Like you're doing exactly what you said you wanted to do when you were 20. <laughs> right. 
And it hit me. Like, first of all, he felt no guilt. And my husband's a commercial pilot. And he's, he's, talk about that. Yeah, he's gone all the time. No. Okay. Like, no, no guilt. Like, why? He doesn't even understand. Like, he's looking baffled. And I thought, yeah, he's really right. What is that all about? And then I started just occasionally I would bring it up in speaking engagements. Like, you know, the, the whole struggle between uh, work and life, as we like to call it, and feeling guilt. And what I found was, especially women, would there would be like this collective, oh, yeah, tell me about it. Like, I didn't even, all I had to say was guilt. I didn't even have to explain okay. why I'm saying I feel guilty. <laughs> It, and it was, it was heavy. And I realized I wasn't alone. And I also wanted to understand, are, do men feel guilty too? Is there a difference in what we're feeling? Are, we, are women wired differently? And what can we do about it? And so what I, re- what I came to realize through the research is, first of all, it's not that men don't feel guilty. Men tend to feel guiltier about bigger black and white kind of things, <laughs> right? Like, okay. Yeah. It's like, I cheated. I shouldn't have done that. It's really obvious stuff. Yeah. Um, and it's not that men don't also have this, what I call false guilt. Right. But we know from research that women, that perfectionism is largely a women's issue. Mm-hmm. So this idea of having these ideals of what it's supposed to look like and falling short, <laughs> Yes. And then beating yourself up about it does tend to happen more with women. We know that women tend to be more empathetic. Men develop empathy later in life. Starting I read that. When they're 50? In their 50s. Yeah, there was that one study. <laughs> I read that and I was like, oh, how much longer do I have to wait? I've got like eight more years. Oh my God. <laughs> this is gonna do I'm going to call you. I'm going to call you. We're almost there. <laughs> yeah, and then there was the um, the it's the, there's also the cultural expectation. So there's been so much to change uh, for women in the last forty or fifty years in terms of op- in terms of opportunity. So you find women will feel guilty if they did stay home. Yeah, um, and then women will feel guilty if they're not staying home. <laughs> and it's just it's it's coming from all directions. And it's not just about motherhood or, or, or being married. It's like whether we are um, married and have kids or not married, don't have kids or single with kids, like a lot around single parenting and guilt. I feel guilty the other parent isn't here. I've done something that's harmed my kids, so I'm going to overcompensate. And so it's this persistent, I haven't done enough. Um, I need to do more. Um, I'm harming people. So a lot of the book, not all of it, but most of it is about this false guilt. I talk about what to do if you authentically are guilty and you're trying hard to, to let that go. You want to be, want to be honest with yourself about that. But the false guilt is (laughs) the authentic guilt is I did something wrong. The false guilt is I feel like I did something wrong. I'm going to beat myself up about this thing that may or may not have been wrong. That's right. I'm going to beat myself up. And the reason we beat ourselves up is because guilt is a debt. It tells you, you owe. And so if I, owe, I need to be punished in some way. I can punish myself by beating myself up, criticizing myself, not allowing myself to speak up in situations where I need to speak up by overcompensating, by letting people guilt trip me. Like this shows up in so many ways 
And what I realize is sometimes we're not even calling it guilt. We just don't let ourselves be happy. <laughs> yeah, that well, that was what I, I was thinking about the different the different debts, right? And I'm thinking one of is that just not allowing myself to feel joy and joyful moments because I'm I'm like, but I'm feeling guilty about this. So that's the deprivation is to deprive myself of joy, which that is a really expensive price to pay. There's my punishment for whatever it is I'm saying that I've done wrong. And then there's also the the discovery I made while I was writing when um, a therapist said to me, happiness is a risk and guilt is safe. And I was like, I mean, I'm a personal and executive coach. I, I, my calling is helping people be happier. I've never thought of happiness as a risk. <laughs> That's a whole chapter. That's a whole chapter. Do, or do you want them to wait so they have to get it? <laughs> no, it's just, it's, I was like, this isn't, it's insane. Yeah. It's just the idea that when <laughs> there's fear that comes with happiness, it's the risk is what if it doesn't stay this way? So let me take my happiness down a few notches because I'll feel safer in case the happiness doesn't stay around. Then the fall's not so far. And I found for myself, it resonated because as I was growing up, there were several things that happened where the rug felt like it was being pulled from beneath me without warning. Like the death of my grandparents who I spent every summer with, (laughs) like, slept in the same bed with them. Like they were, they were second parents. My grandfather died when I was nine. Two years later, my grandmother died. Two two years after that, my, my parents separated. I mean, it was in the, there was more, like, it seemed like every couple of years and I didn't realize it, but when things got really good, I would always get scared. And so this idea that we throw in some negative emotion to keep ourselves from feeling too happy because that feels very vulnerable is a big piece of this. So for me, it was the guilt. I've, I have achieved beyond what I, beyond your vision. Yeah. when I had that vision. Yeah. There's, what am I feeling guilty about? There was nothing when I was thinking of the vision that was like, yeah, well, that's yeah. a terrible vision. You're not going to be a, you're not going to be a full-time stay-at-home mom. So you're doing immense harm. Like there was nothing ever that felt that way until I got to the vision and I was, I was in it and all of a sudden the guilt showed up and I was like, why can't I just fully embrace the joy of, of this season? And that's what I really wanted when I decided to write the book. I was like, I want this for everyone else, but I want it for myself too. I have so many questions. I have so many questions for you. And one actually, um, so you have to tell me, be like, I'm not going to answer that question. <laughs> but I'm thinking about these like rug pulled out from you moments and, and you sharing kind of like your, your history from the past. You had mentioned that you were, I think, married at 30 or divorced at 36 without having had children. So let's bring it forward. You meet your, you re-meet, you connect <laughs> with your now husband. And yeah. this seems like one of those quintessential damp down the happiness moments because I can see when you talk about him and people can probably hear it if they're just listening to this, like your face lights up and it's not like you got married yesterday. Like, very, but so you are fully happy. I feel like you, you, you allow yourself to feel the full happiness of this relationship. Um, was that hard when you met him? Did you, 
was there some of that uh, guilt, not taking the happiness risk, or did at that point were you ready to jump all the way in? I I, had, I was ready. I had been waiting. Another yeah. <laughs> thing I've been praying about. But when you ask that question, here's what comes up. At that point, it wasn't guilt. It was my fear. So even in that moment, Kendra, in that season, I was so afraid that it wasn't going to happen. And I couldn't say that. I wasn't going to, I didn't want to say it out loud. I had horrible thoughts, like something bad's going to happen before our wedding day. Is this, is this reality really going to happen? But I was, I did not want to speak that. So it was something I kept to myself. I never told Jeff. I never said it to my best friends. I never said it to my parents. It was just, it it was something I really had to push through because I was so, it was something I wanted so much and I felt so happy. And I knew, like, I knew this was the person I was meant to marry. And yet I had a lot of fear. So yeah, even in that, there was a lot of happiness and I just had to deal with the fear. And sometimes that's what we have to do. It's like, it's there. I see you. You always show up. <laughs> they're close cousins too, fear and guilt. I feel like they're, I feel like they're like, like, you're not making, you're not, you're not going to make decisions. You're not going to change who I am and what this vision is. And I think honestly, I, you know, I hear a lot about fearlessness. We hear that term a lot, being fearless. I don't believe in it. Fearlessness is a myth. Nobody's fearless. And I think it becomes an excuse that we look at people who we feel are super successful. And I think it does them a disservice to say they're fearless. And this is why I can't do X, Y, and Z, because I'm afraid. Those people are afraid too. Yeah. In the face of our fears, we have to decide to be courageous. We have to decide that, yep, that fear is there and I'm learning to just deal with it being there and keep moving. That for me, and the guilt, guilt is a form of fear. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Guilt is. So I think a big part of it is, is coaching yourself <laughs> in those moments to simply acknowledge it. I see you mm-hmm. and I make the decisions here, not you. So to that end, what do you, and of course the book is out now, so go find it, let go. I want to make sure that I get the whole thing in there because it's so good. Let go of the guilt, stop beating yourself up um, and take back your joy. So go get the book. It really is. And even, um, you know, all this, I, I love the stories, of course. So I was just, I was just eating them up. (laughs) Is there a few, like, is there even one thing that you would like so so how like we mm-hmm. we are all I mean so for example I'm sitting in my apartment uh, my kids are still virtual learning um, and so I have a third and a fourth grader in the other room oh, and, <laughs> you know like here here we are and we learned from last spring that I am not a great I am not a great elementary school teacher so we <laughs> not my purpose. Let's just say that. Not my purpose. So, um, and we feel very fortunate and blessed to be able to do this, but we hired um, a wonderful waitress that we met at a restaurant one night. Um, and she is doing their virtual learning. My mom was like, well, is she a teacher? I'm like, no, but neither was I. So I, she's running the, and I feel guilty that I am not out there 
count, like doing division, which I am, I, I should not be doing division. Like I am not going to be my best self. I'm there not going, I'm not going to be the best. Great way to say it because I understand. <laughs> I'm supposed to be here talking to you. That's what I'm supposed to be doing. But I have to actively say to myself, to close my door and say, there is a reason that woman, Shanna, came into our lives. There's a reason that we are in the situation. There's a reason that, but it is it is a process to, because the guilt feels so, it's such an easy go-to. It's like, it's like a snack, an unhealthy snack that's just right there and you can devour it. So is there something else that we can do when we're just constantly bombarded with that guilt? Yes, yeah, so, so number one, label it. Like as soon as you feel the guilt coming up, it's very important to call it out. Mm. And the reason is this creates an interruption before the guilt takes over and starts making decisions. <laughs> right? right? I, should I even give it a name? Like I should just name it something. Yeah, give it a name. Mrs. Mrs. Wilson or something. Like, <laughs> give her a name. So I'm like, oh, there you are. Uninvited guest. <laughs> that's, right. so that's a first step. And this is based in some really great research called affect labeling, which is you know, when we label the emotion, we're acknowledging that we, we don't necessarily have to do what the emotion says, but it's there. Mm-hmm. So I see it. And, and, and I could be in danger <laughs> of letting the emotion start making all the decisions. The other thing here is I, I created a pot process I call peel, which is a self-coaching process. You pause. You just told me your guilt trigger. That's, that's the P and peel, pinpoint your guilt trigger. Then you want to examine your thoughts. Like, what are you saying to yourself? Now, you didn't tell us exactly what you're saying, but I think it goes probably something like this. Um, A good mother would be in there doing the work with her children. Mm -hmm. She doesn't go hire somebody to do that. Yeah. You might also say something like, so what's more important, your work or your kids? Mm-hmm. Like, that's how guilt talks. I'm not trying to make you feel guiltier right now, Kendra. I'm no, no, I know. I'm. I <laughs> got to examine the thoughts. Like, write out, down all the. What all are you saying? Yeah. And then you're asking a question. Is that true? Mm-hmm. Is it true? Because what I see is someone who, first of all, uh, like like we were, you know, had got kind of got sideswiped in the spring with. <laughs> Oh, this was the last day of school. <laughs> right? We didn't know it at the time. Bye, see you later. Okay. <laughs> Bye. Good luck. Yeah. Um, and when you said not being my best self, that's being really honest. But what I hear is someone saying, I want the best for my kids that we can provide and what might be not only better for me, mm-hmm. but for my kids, if I'm if I have the resources and somebody who can help would be this other scenario. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So we have to exchange the lies that we're telling ourselves for the truth. You're not saying my work is more important than my kids. That is absolutely not what you think. Right. Clearly, you think it's worth it to use some of the resources that you earn from work. Yes. Your kids. (laughs) I know. Those are valuable resources. (laughs) So when we, when we take what we're saying, that's a lie, Mm -hmm. what we then do, and this is the L in peel is we list our evidence, Mm -hmm. evidence such as we've met someone who can actually help us Mm -hmm. Uh, evidence such as now that this woman is helping, I'm noticing that my kids are more productive. They're actually getting the concepts. They're less stressed. 
Mm-hmm. I'm less stressed. Mm-hmm. I'm able to keep earning a living. You know, whatever it is, you start writing your evidence. And, and then it's just, it's just the practice mm-hmm. because the guilt can be persistent. But I'm telling you that when you start telling the truth, when you start noticing the thoughts and examining those thoughts and saying, nope, that's not true. Not true. And even if when we find, like sometimes we're deal, doing this and we'll find an ounce of truth in something, then we can deal with that. That's a separate issue. Yeah. But it's so important to pause. And that's why I keep talking about self-coaching. Pause to ask yourself those powerful questions. And one of the most powerful ones when it comes to our thoughts, is that true? Mm-hmm. Where did that come from? I talk a lot in the book about expectations. Whose expectations are we trying to live up to? Whose values? Yep. Because a lot of times we are bombarded with everyone else's values and we haven't stopped to say, what's important to me? What does the path look like for my household? Because it might look different from someone else. Sometimes it's the expectations of an outdated season. When I got, when I got married to Jeff and I had just finished that run of writing six books, six years in a row, and then I had another book due and I, it suddenly felt beyond overwhelming. And I was trying to push. And then when Alex came along, I had another one due. I got that first one out yeah. with bonus daughters. And that time they were, when we got married, they were six and nine. So they could, you know, they could take care of themselves, like getting dressed and stuff yeah. like that. Well, right? they're six and nine-year-olds right now. Yeah. I'm just kidding. But when, yeah, when you have a baby that needs complete attention, my brain wasn't even there. I was so ecstatic. <laughs> yeah. Oh, yes. How hey, yeah. Look at this. Wow. I just, I called my publisher and said, I'm, I'm not able to do it. I need a year. Yeah. And you and know what? Okay. They knew my journey. Yeah. Said, take, take that time. Congratulations. Sometimes we just have to be able to ask for what we want and what we need without feeling the guilt. Oh, I promised you a book at, by this date, but I, but I didn't know that these circumstances were going to be. Anyway. Yeah. I think there's actually, I wanted to ask you about this and it's kind of coming out of left field, but I've been feeling this a lot in um, with the pandemic and um, watching that my female, my female friends. And of course we, this is a very, we've talked about, you know, men feel guilt in different ways. It's a different, it's, it's a different thing. Um, but I just read a headline today. It was in Bloomberg and it said the first female recession threatens to wipe out decades of progress for us women. And I'm watching my friends and the expectation. And, and now there's this, like, there's this new level of um, expectation and, and multiple levels of expectation. And, and I've, I've had friends just say, I'm out, like, I'm going to, I'm going to, I'm going to take a break from my job. I'm going to whatever it is to, um, and I would imagine when I read that headline and I was also preparing for this conversation, I, I just wanted to get your, like your thoughts on that. Cause I would imagine there's guilt and expectations wrapped up in that too. Now, sometimes it's, it's, it's just straight up facts. Um, it's, you know, you, you, your kids have to be at your house and somebody has to watch them and it's right. got to be you or so I just wanted to see if you had any thoughts on that on what we're facing right now so if we keep the expectations we had in 2019 yeah 
in 2020, we are bound in some way to be set up for falling short, which means the feeling that I'm doing something wrong, which leads to guilt. So I think for a lot of people, I mean, this, this is not like we had a warning. It's not like, it's not like fall 2019. Okay. You only got about six months. Keep preparing. Like it wasn't like that. It was so sudden. I think it's taken months for people to decide what adjustments they need to make. But if we don't make the adjustments and expectation, we can constantly feel like I'm doing something wrong. I'm falling short. I'm not doing enough. I'm not. And when you add to that, the, like you said, if you have kids, young kids that are school age, you know, even the guilt of, am I messing my kids up? Like, you know, like their education, like, are they, um, you know, so there's some of that guilt. I've heard of, you know, the guilt of, especially during when it was really all quarantine, like my kids should not be watching this much, you know, on the electronics, right? But people are like, I mean, I was seeing a lot of memes about, okay, what kind of parent am I? So there's that guilt. And then there's also this guilt that doesn't get talked about. And we don't, we might not even always empathize with it. There are people thriving in this pandemic. And while there've been a lot of layoffs, there've been people who haven't been laid off while maybe their coworkers, their friends, their family members have. So there is that, that guilt that comes from doing better than others. There are people hiding, not that, you know, that they went on vacation, not posting like they normally would on social media, not, you know, or even the guilt of what am I complaining about? We're healthy. Exactly. I don't have a right to feel what I'm feeling because at least we're not dealing with COVID directly. Um, So there's, there's a lot of mixed up emotions, I think, in the middle of this pandemic that, that cause guilt and that cause these kind of feelings of angst and I'm not doing it right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And just noticing those things. And I think using that peel method of noticing the guilt trigger, really examining what are you saying to yourself? And a lot of times what we really need to do is reset our expectations. What expectation do you have right now that it's probably not going to be met. What if you gave yourself permission <laughs> to let that one go? Yeah. Or to change it for now. Maybe for the next year, this is not the expectation that we have. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I think the pandemic, I mean, in addition to this, just the anxiety that it can cause, the feeling of being things being beyond our control, the uncertainty, mm-hmm. the guilt can be piled on top of that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I really think that that um, that right there, the expectation. Like I remember that during the pandemic last spring, they gave us Wellness Wednesday. It was kind of like all the parents were a crying uncle, and so the school issued a you know citywide Wellness Wednesday. No new work will be assigned on Wednesday, so you can everybody can just kind of get caught. oh thank god for wellness wednesday like it was such a big deal well now they're going back to they're still half time virtual they may be going to school and we don't have a wellness wednesday and i was like well we are not well yet like (laughs) wait a minute like i think we are we've got a ways to go before we're well like yeah like other and it was, it was this, it, that's exactly what it was, is it was like expectations are back up to 2019 and, and we're not there. And it is, it's, it's a, it's a trap for guilt because you're falling short. So I think that that is to recognize it for what it is. And that maybe personally, 
you know, maybe externally people are holding, there are certain expectations, but you personally and within your own network and your own community, you can determine what those expectations really are. And you have to, because otherwise you're living, trying to live up to everybody else's expectations. And I think it's important to say in the middle of this, what does success look like for us? Um, How do we know, (laughs) you know, and it, and it, for us and in my household, it is the kids are doing well, like they've made that adjustment. We've got an eighth and a 10th grader. They're doing remote learning. First grader that's actually going to school, that those transitions have been good, that we stay connected as a family, that we've actually had more time, like just to take walks and, you know, because we're not going out all the time, it's more I've actually enjoyed it. I haven't traveled since February. This is the longest. I don't remember the last time that I went this long without getting on an airplane. And I'm not upset about it. I'm speaking. I'm get, I, I mean, the number of speaking engagements I have this last part of the year is, I don't think I've spoken this much in a two-month period. <laughs> as much as I'm speaking October, November, it's like, what's going on? And I'm doing it all from right here. I'm in my basement. <laughs> right? yeah. And so... Um, finding the things to be grateful for. We've, we, our constant refrain has been, what is the opportunity in this challenge? And it's been an opportunity to slow down, to connect with one another, with, you know, my husband, pilot, furloughed, um, you know, eventually was laid off in the summer. And we just, we really were just like, okay, what literally, what is the opportunity in the challenge? Not that it wasn't, you know, for me, I don't even think I was like, okay, you know, there's something in this. What are we supposed to do? My husband just kind of pivoted. Like I had this great career the last year. He's been training pilots, not actually flying, which has been wonderful because he's been home every day. But he's like, yeah, maybe it's time for something new. Because what else are you going to do? If something's beyond your control, you have to say, all right. Hmm, this isn't this isn't the choice I would have made on my own, but maybe, just maybe, that door closing means this other door is open and I'm not gonna keep staring at the closed door and miss the door that's open in front of me. So I think for us that's been the biggest the biggest piece. Um, and there's one other thing I want to share. Yeah. Just when we're talking about the guilt. For those who actually are like, yes, I'm guilty all the time, feel guilty all the time. The people who are most guilt prone, like they're the best to be in a relationship with. <laughs> like they're worried about your feelings. <laughs> and there and there's all this research to back it up. Like people who are more guilt prone, um, they're more likely, it, it's actually a better predictor than passion of showing up to work consistently. <laughs> that you should the one thing you should hire for you should ask interview questions that will reveal a level of guilt yes so that's and, and people who have that sense they give more they're more charitable like there's all of these things and part of it is when you look at the big five personality traits the one that is the biggest predictor of success is also the biggest predictor of feelings of guilt and it's conscientiousness. Mm-hmm. <laughs> conscientiousness oh. is I, I'm very dutiful. I want to do things right. And at the same time, if I have this standard of what's right, 
I have a whole lot of opportunity for getting it wrong, <laughs> which is yes. where the guilt comes yes. in. So I thought when I was doing the research for the book, I was like, that is fascinating. So successful people <laughs> are more likely to be conscientious, which means they're more likely to be guilt prone. So there are, there's actually an upside to guilt. And obviously, you know, it helps us do the right thing. I mean, there's, there's, you know, it helps us say, uh, you know, that, you know, that's not right. <laughs> it helps us. And at the same time, we don't want to overuse that, that conscientiousness, that strength to the point where it leaves us constantly feeling like we're not doing enough. We're not getting it right. So we just have to be able to balance it and see when it gets out of whack. Yeah, that beat yourself up part of it that doesn't serve anyone. Well, Valerie, this has been so, um, this is, I just want to hang out more. Like, this, I think this is the longest I've got. I'm just like, we keep talking. Where can we find you, Valerie? Um, tell us, tell us where we can find you on social media, any upcoming, well, I know, upcoming book. Come on, Valerie, when's the next book? Can we get <laughs> No pressure. <laughs> So they can they can find me online at ValerieBurton.com. And that's really important because I actually created like a six session video series based on the book. So if you get the book, you go to ValerieBurton.com, you want to do it in a group, like talk this all through and work through it together. Plus you can listen to the first chapter right now online. You don't have to pay for it or whatever. So, and I've got a training there, a free training there on how to flip guilt trips, which a lot of us have. And then on social media is at Valerie Burton. And Valerie is spelled like Valor, B-A-L-O-R-I-E. <laughs> yeah, I know. I'm Kendra with an I, so I always have to like sit, you know, like this. Well, thank you so much for being here today, for sharing your story, for writing this book. Make sure that you go out and get it. And I can't wait to hear more of the stories you tell, Valerie. Thank you. I so, so enjoyed this, Kendra. It was like just having a great conversation with a friend. We'll see you soon. If you enjoyed this conversation, look up an inch or down an inch and check out all of our previous discussions. You can find those at iTunes, Spotify, Overcast, Stitcher, or wherever finer podcasts are sold. And of course, check out the latest issue of Success Magazine by heading over to success.com slash subscribe and get more inspiring stories like this delivered right to your front door. Be sure to give us a review on Apple iTunes and you can find me at kindrahall.com or on Instagram at kindrahall. That is Kindra with an I. I can't wait to hear the stories you'll tell. Until next time. Until next time.